Our Psalter reading is from Psalm 116, verses 1 through 7. It can be found on page 510 in the Bibles we provide. We invite the children to join us by looking on page 92 of the children's Bibles. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol lay hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, and can be found on page 982 in the Bibles we provide. We invite the children to turn to page 100 of the children's Bible. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We return this morning in our study of the Sermon on the Mount to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 12. Jesus is speaking. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what's holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The Gospel of Christ. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is giving us a picture of life in God's kingdom, life as he wants his disciples increasingly to live it. Of course, as many point out, it also serves the function of showing us how far short we fall and of sending us to the cross, recognizing our need 
of the righteousness of Christ. But if we think that that's all that's going on here, we miss the major point. And Jesus makes it clear both at the beginning of the sermon and at the end that he wants those who hear these words to do them, to build our lives on them. And so he's giving us a picture of life in him. We come now to these verses that have some of the most familiar cultural uh, sayings, not just a gift to the church, but uh, culturally, many of the things that we read here have become embedded, and you'll hear echoes of them or even hear them quoted in novels, in essays, in philosophical works. Judge not that you be not judged. Why do you want to take a speck out of someone's eye when you've got a log sticking out of your eye? Don't cast your pearls before swine. Uh, and, of course, the golden rule, verse 12, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And it's easy to read these in a morning devotion or whatever. You take this in, in your prayer time, and it can sound as though Jesus at this point was just sort of downloading a lot of wise sayings for his disciples, things that we need to hear, but things that sort of stand on their own and aren't related to each other. But if we hear that little word, so, with which verse 12 begins, then we realize that the so-called golden rule is a summary of all of these others. And the moment we see that, then we realize that there is indeed a thematic thread all the way through them. He's trying to teach us something crucial, which is summarized in the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, of course, that in itself, that statement, is an ancient statement that comes to us in world literature and world religion going back long before Jesus. You find it in Confucius, 500 years before Jesus. You find it in Rabbi Hillel, 100 years before Jesus. But the difference is crucial. In every extant version of the golden rule before Jesus, it was in a negative form and therefore law. Whatever you would hate for someone to do to you, do not do to them. That was the only form in which we ever find it until Jesus. Jesus took it and turned it and made it grace, made it proactive. You can live by the ancient version, the negative form, with regard to your neighbors, do, do them no harm whatsoever, and yet never be in any kind of relationship with them at all. You just didn't break their windows, didn't steal their cat, didn't, you know, uh, sabotage their, their yard. But they don't know that because you didn't do it. Jesus is saying, that's not enough. Whatever you wish that someone else would do for you, do for them. And then, lest we miss how important this is, he says, for that is the law and the prophets. Now, the moment Jesus says that, that should set off bells for those of us who 
know the scriptures, and certainly for any of us who worship here or in any church that, like us, begins its service by saying, remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus gave what is known as the great commandment to love God and love each other as really what the entire law of God is about so that we recognize that it was never meant to be a yoke by which we made ourselves righteous before God. It was rather to be a picture gallery of what it looks like to love God and to love each other. But now if you say, I've got the picture gallery and I know the word, but is there just a simple way for me to understand really what it means to love God and to love others? Jesus reduces it down to this simplest of all statements. Whatever you would that others did to you, do to them. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For this is the law and the prophets. This is love. No longer to be thinking about yourself, but when you are tempted to think of yourself and what you want, what you desire, what you wish, to turn it to outward expression of love by doing this for others. There it is. And then when we read it back, we realize that in these 12 verses, in verses 1 through 6, what Jesus is giving us is a picture of what it would look like if we sought to live the golden rule in relationship with each other. And verses 7 through 11, before, up to the summary in verse 12, we have a picture of what it would look like to live the golden rule in our relationship with God. So I simply want for a few minutes to look at those two things as Jesus in these aphorisms, these sayings, these little pictures, these little tiny vignettes shows us how we're to relate to each other, how we relate to God in light of the golden rule. And so he starts, what, what does it look like? How do I want to be loved by you? Do I want you to judge me when you don't know my heart? Do I want you to always be looking and seeing what's wrong with me and what you wish you could change? What? No! Ugh. And so Jesus is saying to me, why do you do that to others? Why would you judge others? You don't really know what's going on in their lives, even those closest to you. Forty-five years now, a few weeks, 46 years of marriage. And in a good marriage, you, you're one flesh and you know each other so well at one level. But in another sense, boy, Bruce Springsteen was right in the secret garden when he said, finally, you know, the, this journey She'll let you into this and into this and into this, but she'll finally let you close enough that you realize that she will always be a million miles away. Now, what's he saying? That we can't know another? No, he's just saying, 
I think, Bruce, wherever you are, this is what, at least this is what I take from what you're saying, Bruce. That in one sense, we are always a mystery to one another. We don't even understand ourselves fully, much less the people around us. And so how in the world can we take the judgment that God alone knows enough and has the right to make, how can, how can we do that to each other? That is not loving others as we would be loved, and yet we live right now in an age where it's just the stock and trade of so much of what's coming at us. You know, I've, I, as I'm sure you all have, I sit back and just sort of grieve where, how we've gotten to a place where we're so marked by division and constant noise of conflict. And I was thinking, you know, uh, unintended consequences. Uh, Ted Turner just wanted, he, he was a news junkie, and he thought, wouldn't it be great if everybody could get the news constantly? The unintended consequence of CNN is what we've got. Uh, when, when I was growing up, you just, all of America, went out and shook out a newspaper in the morning and read it, everybody in town reading, for the most part, the same one or two papers. Everybody either got Time or Newsweek or U.S. News and World Report and basically was reading the same kind of journalism, same kind of analysis. You had view from the left, view from the right, but it was all respectful. We watched for a half hour the local news at night and then we watched for one half hour one of three channels that basically gave the same news and same analysis. And then we went back to our lives. That's how we were wired. About the time CNN started up and we realized that this was going to go cosmic, uh, it was either Oz Guinness or, or David Wells, I forget which of them, but one of them observed that God did not make us omniscient or omnipresent, but cable news has done that to us, and we're not wired for it. We can't take it. We can't take in that much information and process it and be healthy in our souls. We can't be all over the world. We no longer have the capacity to be horrified. We hear of uh, this shooting down in Florida, and we go, oh, how sad, how tragic. Please pass the croissants, you know, uh, because we're bombarded constantly with so much. What does it do to us related to this? It puts us in a position where almost all that we hear are people shouting at each other, judging each other, accusing each other. And Jesus stands at a point of quiet, saying, Judge not that you be not judged, for the judgment you give to others is the judgment you're going to get. We have the freedom to choose our own judgment. And it's the judgment that we give others. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Second aspect that he speaks of is this log and this speck. Note that he doesn't say, don't ever help anybody try to get a speck out of their eye. In other words, don't ever, if it's appropriate and you're in relationship with someone, ever point out anything or say, really, you know, you might want to think about this or deal with it. He doesn't say don't ever do it. But he says, don't do it until you first recognize 
that you know yourself far better than you know this person. And knowing yourself, you should see that you are far more guilty of the same kinds of things than this thing that's annoying you and this other person. And that you'd better start by dealing with your own stuff. And only after you're doing that, only in the context of that, and hopefully of of their seeing that you're able to be, in a healthy sense, self-critical, self-corrective, trying to get that log out, perhaps asking someone to grab that end and help you pull the log out of your eye before you turn around and then say, if appropriate, to someone with whom you have a relationship, you know, could we talk about this at some point? Parents, true for friends as well, but parents, our kids receive correction so much better if they're growing up in homes where a parent might say at dinner table, I want first just to apologize to everybody for the way I acted last night. I realized I was a complete jerk. I, I was tired. That's no excuse, but I was tired. I was upset about something else, and I'm, I'm afraid I took it out on you all. Please forgive me. Friendships like that where you say, I think, you know, I thought I was being funny, but I, as I drove away, I realized, I think I hurt your feelings. I just... I feel like such an idiot. I'm so sorry. It is in a context where people realize that we are aware of our own stuff and trying to deal with it, that you then have the possibility of fruitful discussions, seldom having to say, by the way, did you usually instead say, you know, I got this thing, that could we talk about it? But deal with your own. And then... The last thing he says on this about golden rule, or the last picture he gives, is of giving dogs what's holy and casting your pearls before swine. And I think that what he's saying there is you have to know when it is not right to speak, when it is not the time, when it is inappropriate. When if you try to press in your wisdom, even if it's holy, even if it's a treasure, You're just throwing it away and making the situation worse. And in those times, the most loving thing you can do is not press in with your advice or your counsel or your talk. You would not want it done to you if you were sitting where they are. If you wonder, okay, what are you talking about? First thing that comes to my mind are two words. Adult children. You've had all those years to train them, to teach them, to be a parent. And now when they come home, they don't want it. They want to move into a a different relationship, one of friendship, one of hopefully some mutual respect, of recognizing that they now have their own lives and are making their own decisions. And to constantly be saying, oh, my kids are coming home. Oh, this is my chance. Lord, give me eloquence. I'm going to mold and shape. And, you know, they don't be surprised if they come home less frequently. (laughs) And it's, you know, the same is true with friends and others. And I've I've finally learned in old age uh, to talk more to God about my kids than to talk to my kids about God. They've heard it all before. 
Sometimes if I think something needs to be addressed, I've finally learned to ask, would you like to know what I think about that? And one of my kids in particular will smile and say, Dad, that sounds like a lunch. And I'll say, that's great. You set it up. I'll be there. If we press in, it may make us feel better. Well, Lord, I said it. Now, whether they take my... Jesus says, it's as though you took the communion and walked outside and pitched it to the dogs. It's as though you took precious jewelry and threw it in the mud in front of pigs and appreciated them and expected them to appreciate it. Why? Is he calling our, our children or the people around us who don't want our advice? Is he calling them dogs and pigs? No. <laughs> no. What he's pointing to is the incongruity. He's saying it would be ridiculous to take something holy and give it to a dog because the dog doesn't want it. The dog can't appreciate it. It does no good. It would be absurd to take treasures and give them to pigs. The pigs don't want it, and they'll just trample it underfoot. He's speaking of the incongruity. What he's reminding us is that when we were where they are, we did not want to be loved like that. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. What does this person really need? Maybe what they most need right now is to be reminded of the love of God in Jesus Christ and to know the gospel. But they are not ready to receive it. And if we try to force feed it, we will close the door. Whereas if instead we are thinking, what does this person most desire from me right now that is a good gift that I can give? And as we do that and do it and do it, we open the door, hopefully, for what's really needed and the opportunity later to share that treasure with someone who now desires it because they've been loved well and they're not afraid of what we might say if they're with us. That's something, I think, from these pictures of what Jesus is trying, just three pictures of what he's trying to get us to think about as we try to understand what it means to love one another. Love as you desire to be loved. But how can we relate that to God? I, what does God need from us? What does he? Well, we know what he desires. But I think the bigger picture is that here he's kind of flipping the image. He's saying, don't you know that that's how God loves you? Don't you realize that you're to love each other that way? Because that's how he loves you. So, ask and it will be given you. Seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be opened unto you. You may say, I've done a lot of asking, seeking, and knocking, and I, I don't feel like that door has been thrown open. Well, the next, the next picture he gives might make it clearer because he says, you who are unrighteous parents know how to give what kind of gifts? Not just any kind of gift they want. It may be poison. It may be bad for them. You know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does your heavenly Father 
give good gifts to those who ask. So he's saying, ask, seek, knock. But he's telling us, as you go to the Father, realize that because he loves you so well, what he will give you, what he longs to give you, are good gifts, good things. And we know what the best thing is. For me, one of the showstopper verses in the Bible is Luke's version of that verse. It's in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. And there it's almost word for word the same as what Jesus said in this context. But there Jesus says, you who are unrighteous know how to give good gifts to your your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give his spirit to those who ask? What does God ultimately want to give? What is the best gift that his children can desire? It's him. Intimacy with him. And he says, I'll give myself to you. I will pour myself out upon you. I will fill you with my life. That's his love for us. That's where we taste and see that God has loved us as we most need to be loved and now has said, as I fill you, as I give you, the good gifts for which you pray. I want you to do the same. That's really what this whole sermon is about. It's constantly Jesus saying, look at my life. Now, I'm giving my life to you, and I want you to give it away to others. I want you to love the way that I've loved you. I want you to do unto others as you would have others do unto you. You know, when you talk to people who have given their lives away in very sacrificial ways that make us step back and go, wow. Of course there are some who have done it out of a neurotic feeling a need to please God or please others or satisfy their own view of themselves. We all have elements of that, and God and his grace forgives us. But when you press in and talk to people who have really given themselves away, eventually what often comes out is something like this. When I made that trip, when I saw how those children live, when I realized all that I have that I just take for granted and saw the nothing of their situation, the aching, grinding hurt and disease and poverty and the rest, I would lie awake at night and think, if I were that child, what would I want someone to do for me? I would want them to come and help me. That's where the golden rule presses into the great commandment and on through it into the great commission. May God help us so to live that those who know us best will have reason to believe that the gospel is true.